thank you, Dermot, for a most uh, generous introduction. Uh, thank you, all of you, for being here today on this uh, first Kane Foundation lunch since the passing of the great John Kane. Can I acknowledge the Wurundjeri people on whose lands we meet today, pay respects to elders past and present, uh, and thank uh, Faith and uh, Dermot and uh, Kane Foundation board members uh, for the honour of inviting me here today. As I said, it's less than two months since John Cain left us and just eight days since the outpouring of public uh, recognition that his memorial service evoked. Uh, as a child of the Cain era, his passing still feels raw to me. My parents grew up in Melbourne and we visited regularly. Uh, the sense, uh, I vividly recall that sense of fresh possibility when the Cain government's 1982 election ended three decades of Liberal rule. The Cain government was a reformist government, reforming liquor laws, investing in public health and education, taking on the gun lobby and the tobacco lobby. And unlike the show ponies and charlatans of today, John Cain took public service seriously. It's no good being in office for three years or four or five, he said. I want to see long-term change. He drew on evidence, reformed the public service, and worked with the caucus and the broader labour movement. It's hard to make decisions on complex issues, he noted. It's more difficult if the process is defective. As Richard McGregor put it, Keynes' intractable belief was that policy ought to be the supreme arbiter of politics. Initially, his public approval ratings were in the 70s, but popularity was always a means of achieving reform, not an end in itself. After a generation of conservative rule in Victoria, he knew he had to work hard to maintain the trust of the electorate. His way wasn't pork and marketing, but hard policy reform. Keynes' approach to politics was one of austere integrity. Pleased to know I flew here economy class from Canberra today. <laughs> he kept a jar of loose change in the office to pay for personal postage. He once set a, sent a box of champagne back to a well-connected donor. When it turned out that an Australian Secret Intelligence Service spy had been working in his office, Kane wasn't panicked, just amused. He figured there was nothing the bloke could have figured out that he couldn't have read in the newspapers. <laughs> At his funeral, James Cain shared some of his father's advice. Be honest and don't cheat the system. Read books. And if you have a choice between the easy way and the hard way, pick the right way, whether it's easy or hard. With that, you can get a lot done. As John Cain once recalled, when elected, we enjoyed more than the touch of idealism. We also had carefully researched, prepared and published policies for all state government activities. Our party had been productive and innovative. John Cain's government marked a change in who was regarded as Victoria's normal party. Before him, the state was regarded as a conservative bastion. Since 1982, Labor has governed in Victoria 71% of the time. 
Victorian Labor has won the last two state elections. As a federal Labor MP, I note this statistic a little ruefully. Since 1982, Labor's governed at a national level just 50% of the time. Federal Labor has lost the last three elections. And last year's election was particularly painful for those of us who believe that elections should be a battle of ideas. Labor took to the election the most comprehensive set of policies of any federal opposition in Australian history. Our policies were more detailed, more carefully costed and more rigorously developed than the ideas that Whitlam took to the 72 election, Hawke took to the 83 election or Rudd took to the 2007 election. Had we won, there would have been no surprise backflips, no dithering about, no debate about whether we had a mandate to do the things we wanted to do. We would have set about implementing our ideas from day one, and Australia would have been better for it. But we didn't win. 48.5% of the two-party votes was only enough to secure 68 seats, one fewer than we'd had in the previous election. As Andrew Charlton has pointed out, the drop in Labor's primary votes over the prior 10 elections averaged 1.3 percentage points. In 2019, Labor's primary vote fell 1.4 percentage points. That's a structural change, which goes beyond personalities, unexpected events, or any single policy. Following our election loss, there were more explanations for why we lost than we had policies. What struck me was the number of people who suggested we should discard ideas based on nothing more than politics. As a friend of mine put it, it was akin to saying, kids didn't like their Christmas presents. Let's buy them something else next year. Labor is not a mere marketing outfit. Our purpose is to craft the policies that'll shape a better future not to engage in mere electoral slicing and dicing. In the 2022 election, we need more than a grab bag of policies. We need a philosophy for government and a plan for the future. To its credit, Craig Emerson and Jay Weatherall's election review didn't take that simplistic approach. They didn't suggest that Labor has to make a false choice between the bush and the city. It recognised that basic truth. With nimble leadership and strong policies, we can meet the needs of regional and urban Australia. Without nimble leadership, without strong policies, we'll lose them both. Today I want to talk about a topic that's close to my heart, the Australian economy. But rather than discussing last month's unemployment figures, or the Reserve Bank's latest board minutes, I'm going to take a longer view. The case I want to make to you is that the Australian economy is in a deep-seated malaise. Turning it around will require more than temporary stimulus. Something much more fundamental is needed. The headline indicators are not pretty. Since 2013, economic growth has slowed. Wages growth is the worst on record. Household spending is growing at its slowest pace since the global financial crisis. 
Retail is into its deepest downturn since 1990, with Harris Scarf, Dimmies, Bardo and Jeans West among those retailers to have hit the wall. New car sales last year fell 8%, with fewer vehicles sold than at any time since 2011. Construction is now shrinking at its fastest rate since 1999. Business investment is at its lowest level since the 1990s recession. The risk to Australia is that if we see these as temporary issues or choose to blame bushfires or coronavirus, we'll get it wrong. There is nothing temporary or transitional about these trends. The sad fact is the Australian economy is less productive, less nimble and less dynamic than many other advanced nations. Indeed, on many of these indicators, the economy has become more stagnant over time. Let's start with productivity. According to the latest update from the Productivity Commission, labour productivity, which is just output per hour worked, fell 0.2% in 2018-19. In other words, workers in the last financial year produced less per hour than the previous year. The worst falls included agriculture, manufacturing, construction, tourism, and professional services. This isn't normal. Since the 1970s, labour productivity has grown by around 2% a year. But since 2013, there's been a major slowdown. And now productivity has gone into reverse. To understand why Australia's productivity crisis is so serious, we've got to recognise why productivity matters. Through Australian history, our economy has become massively more productive. Australian workers today produce nearly four times as much per hour than their counterparts did in the 1960s. Productivity has been a key driver of rising living standards. Productivity measures how efficiently our economy turns labour and capital into goods and services. When we become more productive, we're producing more per hour for a given level of inputs. Higher productivity creates the potential for incomes to rise faster than prices. A more productive economy can be more generous to the disadvantaged, can reduce its impact on the natural environment, and can play a bigger role on the global stage. Productivity doesn't automatically bring fairness. In recent times, workers haven't received their fair share of the modest productivity increases we've observed. But without productivity growth, wages will eventually stagnate. Living standards will eventually stop growing. So whether your priority is longer lifespans or lower taxes, raising new staff or building motorways, you should be in favour of productivity growth. Productivity is the engine of the economy. And right now, it's stalled. Some of the most interesting work on productivity has been carried out by the Australian Treasury. Last year, Treasury's Megan Quinn revealed that researchers in her department, led by Dan Andrews, had been investigating, investing in a new analysis that links together workers and firms. 
and delving into fresh ideas about the dynamics of the Australian economy. Since 2002, Quinn showed, the most productive Australian firms, the, the top 5%, hadn't kept pace with the most productive firms globally. In fact, Australia's productivity frontier had slipped back by about a third. The best of made in Australia hadn't kept pace with the best of made in Germany, made in the Netherlands, or made in America. And then there's the other 95% of firms. In the past two decades, their output per hour has barely risen. Let me repeat, 19 out of 20 Australian firms are barely more productive than when Sydney hosted the Olympics. Essendon, the last AFL premiers. <laughs> Sorry to anyone for whom that burns. And Savage Garden, topped the charts. So, what's going wrong? Part of the problem is that Australian firms aren't investing in new technologies. Less than half have invested in data analytics or intelligent software systems. Only three-fifths have invested in cyber security, making them pretty vulnerable to hacking or ransomware attempts. And it's not just that companies are investing less in technology, they're investing less in everything. Last year, the Productivity Commission had to use a new term in, his, in its report. Typically, the Commission measures how the amount of capital per worker has increased, a notion they call capital deepening. Then, for the first time on record, the amount of capital per worker went backwards. The economy had experienced capital shallowing. Now, given that capital deepening accounts for about three quarters of labour productivity growth, that's a pretty frightening statistic. Across the economy, businesses are cutting back on research and development. They're investing less in good management. Just 8% of Australian firms say they're building something that's new to the world. And that's down from 11% in 2013. Compared with the leading countries, the uptake of automation in Australia is only half as large. Innovation collaboration is especially woeful. Across a sample of around 30 OECD nations, Australia ranked second last in collaboration between businesses and universities. A survey of management practices in manufacturing firms found that Australia's managers ranked below managers in Canada, Sweden, Japan, Germany and the United States. And then there's the dearth of new firms. It could be said that you could figure out in the 1950s that Detroit would one day suffer a crash. The automakers, automakers were thriving, but the city lacked startups. Once the traditional car manufacturing plants got into trouble, Detroit slumped. And what's true for Detroit also holds true for cities, regions and countries around the globe. Newborn firms are as critical to an economy as newborn babies are to its demography. They bring fresh approaches. They shake up existing industries. They offer new opportunities to workers. And yet, for all the talk of Australia as a start-up nation, our new business creation rate isn't accelerating. In fact, our start-up rate seems to be stopping, although it's partly masked by a quirk in the way the data is collected. 
The conventional startup figures include anyone who registers for an Australian business number. So when a public servant takes a voluntary redundancy and comes back the next month as a consultant, she's registered as a new business. Or when a tradie is encouraged by her boss to become a sham contractor, she also becomes a new business. Neither of those cases involve true new business formation, so they do distort the data. And the way to get around this is just to look at employing businesses, firms that have at least one worker. On this metric, Treasury estimates the new business formation rate in the early 2000s was around 14% a year. Now it's down to 11%. Our economy simply isn't hatching new firms like it used to. Another sign that the economy may be stagnating comes to from figures on job switching. A common myth is that changing jobs is bad for workers and it's happening more often. In both cases, people are wrong. Workers who switch jobs typically experience a significant pay increase. In fact, when you study wages over a career, the largest salary rises tend to come when employees switch firms. Just think about your own career. Occasionally, job changes will be involuntary Occasionally, they'll be painful, but more often, they're voluntary and beneficial. And to see why this is a problem, imagine Australia instituted a rule saying no one could switch jobs. Anyone who didn't like their boss, anyone who wanted to try working in a different sector, wouldn't be allowed to make the change. Growing companies wouldn't be able to attract workers from their competitors. Such a rule would be profoundly anti-worker. And consistent with this, Treasury's research finds that a drop by one percentage point in the job switching rate is associated with a half a percentage point drop in wage growth across the country. While changing jobs tends to benefit workers, it's happening less often than in past decades. Forget what you've learned about a fast-changing labour market, the end of jobs for life. Workers are staying longer in their jobs. In the early 2000s, the rate of job switching was 11% a year. Now it's down to 8%. It's not the fault of the employees. There's just fewer good job opportunities available. According to Treasury's analysis, much of the drop in job switching is because workers are less likely to transition from mature firms to young firms. With fewer start-up firms, it stands to reason there's fewer start-up jobs. Job mobility isn't the only form of mobility that's declined. When the mining boom hit Western Australia, some commentators were surprised to see how few people moved across the Nullarbor. Western Australian jobs paid more, even when you accounted for housing costs, and they were more plentiful than in the eastern states. But for the most part, they ended up being filled by fly-in, fly-out workers, or people who moved to Western Australia from overseas rather than interstate. I was curious to see whether this was a unique feature of the WA mining construction boom or whether it was something more deep-seated. So I looked at trends in residential mobility in the census going back as far as, as possible. Turns out that in the 1960s and 1970s, 40% of Australians reported moving house in the previous five years. 
in the 2000s, that figure fell to 38%. Now, those trends are especially surprising in light of the fall in home ownership, which should have increased people's willingness to move house. Yet it hasn't, suggesting we're more likely to stick in one spot than we were in the past. A similar decline in geographic mobility has occurred in the United States, where the share of people moving each year has almost halved since the 1950s. Among the suggested causes were a lack of portability in pensions, high moving costs, high costs of living in large cities, and inconsistent occupational licensing requirements. The overall picture of the Australian economy came into sharp focus last year, with the re release of the latest update of the Harvard Atlas of Economic Complexity. Here's how their analysis works. It starts with the idea that some products are more complex than others. Making medical imaging devices or jet engines takes deep knowledge. It takes extensive networks. By contrast, exporting timber or tea is less demanding. Lead author Professor Ricardo Hausman and his team liken the problem to Scrabble. A player with just a few letters can only make a few words. More complex countries are like Scrabble players who can make more words. Analysing the export mix of countries, the analysis decides which products are complex by looking at the characteristics of the countries that make them. Countries that produce silicon chips tend to export a diverse variety of other items. Nations that export diamonds are less diversified. Aggregating a nation's exports gives a measure of the diversity of its economy. The world's most complex economies, according to Harvard's ranking, are Japan, Switzerland and Korea. Australia ranks 93rd. The three countries ahead of us are Morocco, Uganda and Senegal. Now, the atlas of complexity is, I don't know how to say this, a fairly complex way of analysing the economy. So, Let's take possibly the most simple exercise I'll show you today. Let's look at the stock market now and a decade ago and ask the question, what are the biggest listed companies? First, let's look at the United States. Here's the five biggest listed companies for the US in 2010. ExxonMobil, Microsoft, Apple, Walmart, Berkshire Hathaway. And here's the five biggest US firms today. Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, Amazon, and Facebook. Five technology companies, three of which weren't in the top five list a decade ago. Now, let's do the same exercise for Australia. 2010, our largest firms were BHP, CBA, Westpac, ANZ, NAB. In 2020, our largest firms were CBA, CSL, BHP, Westpac, NAB. So that's three banks, a miner and one technology firm. And only one of our top five firms wasn't among the top five a decade ago. So compared with the United States, our largest firms are more stable and they're less technologically focused. In the case of our banks, they primarily serve a domestic market. 
and indeed are less international than they were a decade ago. <coughs> so what are the bright spots? In his 2006 book, The Australian Miracle, biologist Thomas Barlow pointed out that our oft-listed, cited list of Australian discoveries, the black box flight recorder, polymer banknote, hills hoist, wine cask, two-stroke lawnmower, isn't actually any longer or shorter than you'd expect of a country our size. We're an inventive people, but it'd be dangerously complacent to think that our ingenuity places us far ahead of the Swiss, the Canadians or the New Zealanders. As Donald Horne's lucky country warned us, there's a risk we live on other people's ideas rather than producing our own. So how do we make the Australian economy more dynamic? Part of the challenge is cultural. Surveys conducted by the Australian Entrepreneurship Monitor found 41% of Australians said they'd be deterred from starting a firm by fear of failure, which is higher than the average in advanced countries, higher than Britain, where only 36% are deterred by fear of failure, or the United States, where that fear deters only 33%. Uh, but it's also about getting the institutions right. For example, encouraging firms to collaborate with universities on research and innovation would help students get more practical insights. It'd ensure that firms were doing more to stay on the leading edge of technology. Creating pathways for young people to try entrepreneurship also ensures that society is getting the benefit of talent everywhere, not just in the leafiest postcodes. For example, UTS Startups is a program that aims to give half of all UTS undergraduates an experience with a startup during their studies. Rather than entrepreneurship being special, Director Murray Herbst says his goal is for all students to see entrepreneurship as normal, desirable, accessible, and just part of their experience at UTS. Innovation can't be an exclusive process. If the history of innovation tells us anything, it's that terrific ideas often emerge in unexpected places. The more opportunities Australia creates to encourage innovation among women, ethnic minorities, people with disabilities, the more fresh inventions will emerge. When it comes to firms, we've seen a mozza of mergers, but a scarcity of startups. As Adam Triggs and I outlined in a paper in the Federal Law Review last year, this follows a period in which courts and regulators we're under the spell of the Chicago School philosophy of competition policy, which took a little too much of a big is beautiful approach. Might be time to change tack on our competition laws. Our relationship with the Asian region has been seen through the lens of people and goods flows. But another aspect is the flow of ideas. Improving Asia literacy among managers won't just boost our exports. It'll also expose firms to new production processes, management structures, and collaboration approaches, improving our understanding of Asia and our engagement with Asia. We are a crucial part of creating a more dynamic economy. Of course, there's education. In the face of automation and artificial intelligence, cloud computing and mobile devices, it's vital our education system keeps pace. 
That means attracting and retaining the best people into the teaching profession, creating more opportunities for vocational education studies, removing the artificial caps on university places and accrediting MOOCs so they form part of a higher education ecosystem. John Kane taught progressives that idealism and discipline were essential to bringing about change. His government was productive and innovative, characteristics that are essential not only to the Australian economy, but to any reforming Labor government. Thank you. Look forward to your questions.